wake ourselves up. And, uh, but I didn't want to just jump right into the song too quickly because because I thought, man, there's such a potential to miss something really, really special here. Um, it's not a song. God can use any song. Um, but this song is called Rejoice, and, and that's what we want to call each other to. That's what we want to call our own hearts to this morning is rejoicing. I've been thinking a lot about just everything that's been going on in Afghanistan and in our world. And, um, and when we talk about the idea of rejoicing, and, and we're in the book of Philippians, and and, and rejoicing is such a key theme in that book while Paul is writing as he's chained to a Roman guard under house arrest. And, and he's writing again rejoice. And um, it's in that context of persecution that I think we learn um, what rejoicing is to a new depth and the power that God gives us to rejoice in unfavorable, uncomfortable circumstances. And as I've been thinking about just the horrors and, and, and stuff that our brothers and sisters are going through, as, as they are preparing to meet the Lord, and many of them are. Um, I, I can't fathom what that's like, and I tried to this week. But as we sing this song, that we would, like, in, in a way, like, sing this for them, if, that's, if I can say that, not really, but, but as they are rejoicing in their sufferings, can we rejoice with them? Can we rejoice in our sufferings as we reflect on these words? Can we do that, church? Let's not play the game this morning, amen? Let's worship our God. He's here. He is real and He loves us. And He is worth rejoicing in. Amen? Come on, let's stand. Let's sing.
Jesus carried up the hill. He has walked this path before us. He is walking with us still. Turning tragedy to triumph. Turning agony to praise. There is blessing in the battle. So take heart and stand amazed.
This morning we are going to be in Philippians chapter number 1, verses 12, 13, and 14. And in our text, we're going to see how the Apostle Paul is encouraging uh, this church while he is in the middle of being persecuted for his faith. Uh, he's showing this church and us how the adversity that he is facing actually is advancing the gospel. And later when we get to verse number 18, we're going to see how this advancement of the gospel in the middle of his persecution, actually what was causing Paul to rejoice. God was using the fact that adversity was advancing the gospel as a means of grace in Paul's life and a means of his own rejoice, rejoicing. Uh, now we know according to church history and biblical history that Paul's ultimately released from the imprisonment that he's in here as he's writing Philippians around A.D. 62. Uh, he then goes to Ephesus, and he writes several more epistles. Uh, around A.D. 64, a major wave of persecutions against Christians broke out. That's when the great fire at Rome took place. Nero blamed it on the Christians and used that as an excuse to begin an intense wave of persecution. And a few years after that started, Paul was thrown into the Mamertine prison. When we think of Paul in this dungeon-type prison cell, that's what the Mamertine prison was. Around A.D. 67... And while he was in the Mamertine prison, he wrote 2 Timothy uh, before he was eventually beheaded. Uh, but the fact that things are going to get worse for Paul uh, doesn't mean that the way they are is currently good. He is still facing persecution. And as we consider his persecution this morning, uh, it brings to mind our brothers and sisters around the world who continue to face intense persecution. Hunter mentioned that at the beginning of the service. Uh, earlier this week in our church Facebook group, I shared... An article, well, it was about a week and a half ago, I shared an article uh, telling, uh, telling how pastors in Afghanistan right now are asking for prayer. The right of the article states that as the Taliban forces have swallowed up Afghanistan, pastors in the country have been emailing the right of the article and messaging him over the last few days, even hours, anxious for our prayers. He went on to say, one house church leader sent me a picture of the small room he was hiding in with his family. And she wrote, this is where we're living. We are hidden right now in different areas. Another pastor wrote, we can't go out like normal, it's dangerous. We moved into one of my friend's houses, but it's not safe at all. 
uh, the writer of the article quoted Mindy Bells saying that the pastor say that the Taliban has contacted them saying that they're coming for them. The exact quote he was referencing to uh, Mindy Bell, she put on her Twitter account. She's a senior editor of uh, World Magazine. She said, a person who works with house church networks in Afghanistan reports its leaders received letters last night from the Taliban warning them, this was a few, uh, about a week and a half, two weeks ago, warning them that they know where they are and what they are doing. And she said the leaders told her, we're not going anywhere. I mean, you read that and you hear about that and you think, what faith? And as you study church history, you see that there's story after story after story of Christians like those in Afghanistan right now who are stalwart in their faith, even as they are facing death. So as we read Philippians chapter number one this morning, and I know this will be our fourth time reading it through as a church family, I want us to put ourselves in their shoes this morning. I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to read Philippians and kind of picture myself in a hammock on the beach because of Paul's relentless joy. But as we said, Paul is chained to a Roman guard awaiting trial from Nero. He didn't know he was going to be released. He didn't know what he was facing. And so as we read this morning, I want us to consider Paul's context as he's writing these words. I want us to consider our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and around the world who are literally fearing for their lives as they gather in whatever form they can with their church family. And I think as we consider that reality, the truths of this book come alive to us in ways that are so rich and so sustaining and so life-giving. These truths, they kind of move past these coffee mug cliches, and they become truths that sustain us in our darkest hour. And so let's turn to Philippians chapter number one, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do this morning. Philippians chapter number one, uh, I'm going to read through the whole entire chapter of chapter number one, and then we will work through verses 12, 13, and 14. The Bible says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Last week, we actually looked at what he was praying. Verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it's right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart, and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know he says this as he's moving past the introduction of the book, as he's moving in now to the, to, to the meat of Philippians, he starts with saying, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. 
To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. Verse 18, what's the matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that, you will, is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. Verse 27, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had. And now here that I have. Let's pray. Father, I do pray. I do echo those words that Hunter prayed over us as a church earlier. That your spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, I pray that your word would bring good news to the poor. I pray that it would heal the brokenhearted. That it would proclaim liberty to the captives freedom to the prisoners, that it would proclaim the year of your favor, but also the day of your vengeance. I pray that it would comfort those who mourn, that it, your word would give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festival oil instead of mourning, splendid clothes instead of despair, and they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. Lord, I think of how your word makes us like what Psalm 1 says, those trees planted by the waters that stand strong and firm. And I pray that your word would do that work in us this morning. Lord, on the one hand, I feel so unqualified to stand up here and proclaim these truths in light of what our brothers and sisters around the world are going through right now. I've only begun to scratch the surface of understanding these, of actually knowing them, like Paul says. We're so comfortable here in the West. We don't fear for our lives as we gather this morning. And so on the one hand, I feel so unqualified when I consider everything that they're going through. But on the other hand, Lord, this is your word. This isn't what I'm saying. This is what you are saying. And so I pray that as we study your word together this morning, we would be like those Christians in verse 14 and that we would boldly proclaim your word wherever you bring us to. We ask this in your name. Amen. Uh, one of the things that we'll see as we work through some of these verses this morning is that we can experience joy while we're facing adversity when we value Jesus above all else. 
This, this is the source of Paul's relentless joy. And our first thought this morning as we consider verse number 12 is that adversity can advance the gospel. He says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. Now, there's been a lot of things that have happened to the Apostle Paul. I mean, the most immediate context that he's referring to is his imprisonment in Rome. But if you back up a little bit and you read 2 Corinthians 11, 24 through 27, you'll see the Apostle Paul went through a lot. Those verses tell us that five times he received 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. That was basically the death penalty. Five times he received that. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. I love how he says that. Once I received a stoning, like I received a gift. <laughs> like once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and the day in the open sea. On frequent journeys, I face dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold, and without clothing. The Apostle Paul faced a ton of adversity. But through all this, Paul viewed all of this adversity. He sees his current imprisonment as a catalyst to advance the gospel. Why? Because Paul really believed nothing stops the work of God. Nothing stops the work of God. Paul could be confident that his imprisonment would advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, partly because of the promise that we looked at a few weeks ago in verse number 6. I am sure of this, that he who started that good work is going to carry it on to completion. The reality of what Paul states in verse 6 was so real to the Apostle Paul that even in his persecution, it did not take his eyes off the mission of God. That truth was so real to him. Jesus was so real to the Apostle Paul that he believed with every fiber of his being, nothing can stop God's plan. Author B.B. Warfield, uh, he wrote, In the infinite wisdom of the Lord of all the earth, each event falls with exact precision into its proper place in this unfolding of his eternal plan. What he's saying is your life is not an accident. The experiences that you are walking through are not some big cosmic, whoops, didn't see that one coming. They're part of God's perfect plan, and he wants to use the adversity that you are facing to further the gospel, to advance the gospel. Friends, there's nothing more freeing or strengthening than the fact that the omnipotent God who created the entire world is with you, ordaining every circumstance that you walk through. This means that nothing but what God allows for your ultimate good, your eternal good, will ever happen to you. And when that truth is so real in our hearts and it's so real in our lives and we believe it with every fiber of our being, we, like Paul, can say the things that are happening to me can actually advance the gospel. I mean, we're so familiar with these verses. Like Romans 8, 28, we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. But church, do you really believe that verse? With every fiber of your being, that all things, even pain, even adversity, even suffering, work together for good for those who love God. Matthew 16, 18, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Think about how th th that verse is just unfathomable. It's crazy almost. Like, do, do we really believe that nothing 
can hinder the work of God. I mean, it's so easy to look around in our world and see all these things that we disagree with and every new ism that comes out, every new thought process or ism or whatever that's trending and think, well, that's a threat to the church right now. That, that, that belief system, that's the biggest threat that we're facing in the church. And it's true. God often calls the church into dangerous situations. God will allow us as a church to walk through adversity. But if the gates of hell don't pose a threat to the church, why are we not more courageous in our faith? Paul writes to this church and he says, I want you to know we're moving past the introduction of the book. We're moving now into the meat of Philippians. And he starts that by saying, church, I want you to know this. I want you to know God's plan cannot be stopped. God always wins. So even in our adversity, even in our persecution, we can rejoice. And church, the Holy Spirit wants us to know that too. This word know here that Paul uses, in the original language, it's the word gnosko. It means that you learn something to know it, or you come to know something through experience. It means you perceive it, you feel it, you've experienced it to be true in such a way that it literally shapes the way you live your life. It was also a Jewish idiom for intercourse between a man and his wife. When the Bible says Adam knew his wife Eve, I mean, that, that's this word that Paul is using here. It's this deep, intimate level of understanding, like this experience that you just, you know this with every fiber of your being to the point where it literally affects the way you live your life because you've experienced it. You know it's true. And what Paul is saying, what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us through his word this morning is God wants us to know adversity actually advances the gospel the holy spirit wants this truth to be so real to us that we feel it in our bones that it shapes the way we live that it shapes the way we view adversity that it shapes the way we view suffering like it did for paul adversity advances the gospel it is not an accident god allows us to walk through that so that we can advance his kingdom now if you're like me i look at this and i'd be like okay Nothing can stop God's plan. Adversity can advance the gospel. But how does that work? How does suffering advance the gospel? Let's consider our next two thoughts this morning. Adversity and persecution actually advance the gospel because it shows us our second thought this morning, and that is Christ is worth suffering for. Look at verse 13. He says, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial garden to everyone else. I'm assuming that everyone else is the people in Caesar's household because at the end of the book, we see them coming to Christ, but... Everyone else is a big phrase. He says, this is known throughout the whole imperial garden to everyone else that what? My imprisonment is because I am in Christ. People who Paul would have never otherwise met, the imperial guard, the people in Caesar's household, everyone else, are now seeing that Christ is worth being thrown into prison for and coming to Christ. The imperial guard that he's referring to, they're the praetorian guard. They were like the elite of the Roman soldiers. I mean, they, these, these were bad dudes. Like, they were the elite. They would serve as the personal bodyguards and intelligence officers for the emperor. They would also serve as escorts for high-ranking political officials. People feared the praetorian because they were so well-connected. They could overthrow an emperor if they wanted to. One of the less exciting aspects about their job, though, was they had to guard certain prisoners. 
And Paul would literally be chained to one of these guys while he was under house arrest all day long. There was never a moment when he wasn't chained to one of these elite Roman soldiers. And they would take rotating shifts being chained to the Apostle Paul. So while Paul is in prison, there was never a moment he was not physically chained to this elite Roman warrior. I mean, talk about a captive audience. Paul had it. Sorry, I couldn't resist that dad joke. It was just low-hanging fruit. But every time the Apostle Paul got chained to a new guard, he had a new audience to share the gospel with. He had a new audience to demonstrate to that Christ is worth this. <laughs> I can rejoice right now because my Savior is worth being chained to you for, pal. And it's becoming known throughout the whole imperial guard that this is because he's in Jesus. And now as you look at Philippians 4.22, you see now people in Nero's own household are coming to Christ. Philippians 4.22, all the saints send you greeting, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. People in Caesar's own home are being led to Christ because of Paul's imprisonment. They're saying that Jesus is real. They're seeing a living demonstration of the surpassing value of Christ. They're seeing a living demonstration of Romans 8, and they're coming to Christ as a result. I mean, I love Romans chapter 8. It says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined are also called, and those who are called he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? All these people that are seeing Paul's imprisonment, these guards, these people in Caesar's household, they are now witnessing through the life of the Apostle Paul, through his imprisonment, that if God is for him, who can be against him? He goes on, he didn't even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? It's God that justifies. I mean, consider this. Paul's awaiting trial. Who can bring an accusation to him? Nobody. God's the one that's justified. Who is the one that contempts? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also sat at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? These, uh, these Roman soldiers, these people in Caesar's household, they're now witnessing that nothing can separate the Apostle Paul from the love of Christ. They're seeing affliction can't, distress can't, persecution can't, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. As it is written, because of you, we're being put to death and counted as sheep for the slaughter. The Apostle Paul, he says in Philippians 1, I don't know if I'm going to live or die. I don't know if I'm going to make it out of this. But everybody is seeing that the Apostle Paul's like, it's worth it. Because in all of these things... We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come. The suffering I'm facing right now, the suffering I might face in the future, Paul says, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing is able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even though, Paul says, even though we may be slaughtered, we are more than conquerors. And these people saw the Apostle Paul living that out, and they came to know Christ as a result. You see, when this becomes real, church, when Jesus becomes real in our hearts, when our forgiveness, our complete and total forgiveness becomes real, when the truth that God is for us becomes real, when we really believe that Christ has made us more than conquerors, when we really believe nothing can separate us from God's love, not even death, we will gladly lay down our lives for Jesus. And when the world sees that played out in real time, 
they are drawn to him. Suffering was advancing the gospel because it was a living demonstration of how Jesus Christ is worth suffering for. The gospel is advanced when people see that Christ is worth suffering and dying for. Adversity, suffering, persecution, as difficult as they are, as unqualified as I feel to even say this, they are opportunities for the worthiness of Jesus to be put on display. One pastor said it this way. He said, God considers it more important that the world knows Christ is worth dying for more than that Christ makes life easier. I mean, we see Paul saying this later in Philippians, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Everything that was gained to me, I've considered it to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing, experiencing, walking with Jesus Christ, my Lord. Because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I considered them but dung. I have lost everything, for Paul says, and it doesn't amount to a hill of dung so that I may gain Christ. Adversity is not a hindrance to the gospel. It's the very thing that demonstrates the worthiness of Christ, which advances the gospel. So wherever you find yourself in life this morning, Whatever situation you're in, it is a God-given opportunity to share the gospel where one would not have existed otherwise. It's a God-given opportunity to demonstrate the worthiness of following our Savior and our King. When people see that Christ is worth dying for, they are drawn to Him. Early Christian writer uh, Tertullian wrote a manuscript called Apologeticus. And what it was is it was a work demanding legal toleration of Christians in the Roman Empire. This was a few hundred years after Christ. And in this work that he wrote, he said, we spring up in greater numbers the more, you, the more we are mown down by you. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Even though he was standing against persecution, and rightfully so, rightfully demanding that they be tolerated and allowed to worship, rightfully standing in that, he recognized that persecution was the very thing that was causing Christianity to spread. Adversity advances the gospel. Why? Because it demonstrates that Christ is worth suffering and dying for. And it also demonstrates that when Christ is magnified, the church becomes fearless. When we see our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan are being faithful to the point of death, it should provoke courage in us. Look at verse 14. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Now, we're going to look at next week, there were some that preached Christ out of contention and what that meant. Some used it as an opportunity to try to attack Paul. But when we're walking with Jesus and we see Christ magnified through the display of his worthiness, even in suffering, it should light a fire in us like it did these Christians here in verse 14. They gained confidence. They saw Jesus is real, so let's go speak the word fearlessly. Now this morning, we aren't the ones that are in prison. We aren't the ones being persecuted. The question I'm wrestling with and the question we want to wrestle with is, what are we doing? When we see Christ, Christ magnified through the selfless sacrifice of others, it should light a fire in us. Jim Elliott was a missionary in the 1950s who wanted to take the gospel to the indigenous people of Ecuador. And he and four of his friends 
they were graduates of Wheaton College. It was a Bible college that they had graduated from. Uh, they went to Ecuador to be missionaries to these people, and very early on, as they went there, they actually became martyrs at the very hands of the people that they were trying to reach. Jim Elliott is now famous for writing in his journal, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, to many at the time, their death seemed like a needless tragedy, like a failure in their mission. But when Christ is magnified, the church becomes fearless. After their death, a high number of graduates from their alma mater, Wheaton College, became missionaries. They saw the sacrifice that Jim Elliott and his friends made, and they said, I, I sign me up, I'm going. Jim Elliott's own wife, Elizabeth, went back to the very people that killed her husband and friends and led many of them to Christ. One of the men on the team who was martyred was a man named Nate Saint. He was their pilot. His son, Steve Saint, went back to these people and even baptized one of the very men who killed his father. Why? Because when we see Christ magnified to the point where we're like, he's willing to suffer and die for us, Christians become emboldened to speak the word fearlessly. Pastor and writer Stephen J. Lawson said, one believer on fire for God can embolden thousands with new courage. Toward the end of Paul's life, he, he writes and encourages Timothy in 2 Timothy. He says, Tim Timothy, be faithful to your calling in 2 Timothy 2. Be faithful to pass on what you have learned, to teach others, to raise up faithful men. Be steadfast in your teaching, encouragement. And as he calls and as he encourages Timothy to be faithful, he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.8, Remember Jesus. Remember that the word of God is not bound. And because Jesus is faithful and his word is powerful, we can courageously endure for the sake of the gospel going forward. 2 Timothy 2, 8 through 10 says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead and descended from David according to my gospel, for which I suffer to the point of being bound like a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. He's like, Timothy, I'm bound. At this point, he's in the Mamertine prison. This is it for the Apostle Paul. He's saying, I'm bound and treated like a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. This is why I endure all things for the elect, so that they may obtain salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul is writing to sec he's writing 2 Timothy. He's in that second imprisonment. He's in that Mamertine prison. He's in the dungeon waiting to be martyred. And one of the last things he wrote was, Jesus was worth it. The word of God is not bound. This is why I can endure. So Timothy, be faithful. Be courageous, Timothy. Because when we see the worthiness of Jesus and others' willingness to suffer and even die, it lights this fire in us to spread the word of God. And so as we conclude this morning, I want us to think through a few questions. In what ways can the adversity I'm facing actually advance the gospel? We're not suffering persecution. Sometimes I think we in the West have a suffering, or we have a persecution complex. We're, we're, we're not facing persecution. But that doesn't mean we don't walk through suffering. So ask yourself, the difficulties in my life, how can God use those to actually advance the gospel? What opportunity is this giving me to advance the gospel? How can the truths of Philippians, how can these truths give me courage to share the gospel? Ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, would you show me where I'm living in fear when I should be living courageously? Ask the Holy Spirit, who can I share the gospel with? Who at your work, who in your family, who in your neighborhood can I share the gospel with? Before the worship team comes and leads us in our final song this morning, we're going to have a time of corporate praying. 
for our brothers and sisters around the world, specifically in Afghanistan. We're just going to take a few moments of quiet. There's not going to be any music. If you want to turn around and kneel in your seat, if you want to come and pray at the altar, that'd be fine. Uh, we're going to put those requests that I mentioned earlier from pastors in Afghanistan. This is how pastors in Afghanistan are asking us to pray for them. We're going to have those up on a screen so that we can have a, silent, a time of silent prayer. And then in a few minutes, I'm going to pray through portions of Romans 8. I'm going to pray th through that for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. I'm going to pray that over our church. And then the worship team will come and lead us in a final song. The, th the three requests, and I mean, if you look around online, there's tons of great organizations that work with the persecuted church. There's Remember, that's one of them. This one I shared was from an organization called Nine Marks. Lots of good organizations that you can get lots of different ways to pray. Uh, but the three we're going to look at this morning that they've asked specifically for is physical protection and provision. Pray that God would rise to their defense. For those that are trying to get out, pray that they could get out. For those that are like God is calling us to stay, pray what God would rise to their defense. So you read through the Psalms, you'll see over and over and over again, God cares very deeply about those that are oppressed. And so we want to pray that God would rise to their physical defense. We also want to pray for their spiritual provision. provision. They're asking us to pray that, guard that God would guard and strengthen their faith. They're asking us to pray that God would guard and strengthen their faith because they want to be faithful. And they're also asking that we would pray the gospel would be advanced. One brother described these days as dark and said they feel like a storm. And then he asked for prayer for revival. A faith. We don't even understand. But this is how they are asking us to pray. So we are going to join them in their imprisonment by praying for them. We're going to have these requests up on the screen. Again, if you want to pray in your seat. I, I know it doesn't matter the posture of our prayer, but I would encourage you if you are physically able to change your posture. I think it's good to, to, to change the physical posture of our bodies to help focus our minds so that we can pray. So if you're physically able, I'd encourage you to just turn around, kneel at your seat. You can come kneel up here if you want. If you want to stand, feel free to do that. But we're just going to have a few moments of silent prayer, and we're going to pray for our brothers and sisters, and then I'll come and pray through Romans 8 in a moment.
we thank you that there's no condemnation for those who walk in Christ Jesus. Lord, help that to be real to this church. I pray that that truth would be so real to our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan and every brother and sister around the world who is facing persecution. Lord, I pray that we here at Fresno Church would not walk according to our flesh because that brings death. 